Open your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Well, yeah, I'd like to spend a little time with you this morning in the Scripture. And, uh, you know, Christian life is made up of demands and privileges, like life in general, really. We have duties and we have privileges. You go to school, and what do we offer you here at the college? Duties, yes. Homework, papers, assignments, class, responsibilities, practice, etc. But along with that, we try to throw in a few privileges like chapel, <laughs> athletic events, music, relationships, special events. Life is like that. The Christian life is like that. Christianity is like that. It's duties, it's privileges, it's responsibilities, it's blessings. And from time to time, when I have the privilege each week of ministering to you from the Scripture, I, I dwell on the duties. Last time we talked about the duty and responsibility of drawing near to God. And in our Bible conference time a couple of weeks ago, we were pretty heavy on the duties, weren't we? The duty that you have to God, the duty that you have to the world to communicate the gospel of Christ. We talked a lot about duties. This morning I want to talk about privileges. I want to talk about blessings. Since Ephesians 1.3 says we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings, blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, that's a very important part of it. And I want to talk about the blessing of eternal security. I want to talk about the wonderful gift that God has given you of an eternal salvation. Once you commit your life to Jesus Christ, it is forever. And the reason I want to talk about this is because I think it's a question that people continually ask. I have people in my church invariably every Sunday who come up to me and say, I am afraid I may have done something to lose my salvation. Sunday morning, a beautiful lady came up to me, she's probably 30 years old, and she said, may I speak with you a moment? And I said, sure. She told me your name. She said, my name is Francine. She said, a number of years ago, I committed my life to Jesus Christ, and I've been walking with Christ. But just recently, she said, I left my husband and my three children, and I had an affair with another man, and I am pregnant with that other man's baby. And she said, I'm living in fear that I have lost my salvation. I don't know what to do. And she says, what makes it so frightening to me is there are times when I want to go back to my husband, but he's not sure he'll take me because of what I've done to him. And there are other times when I want to stay with the man whose baby I carry. And I keep questioning myself about whether I am really saved or whether God has just let me go. That's just Sunday. Another young man came up to me and tears were in his eyes. And he said to me, I have a real problem believing that I am worthy to be continually forgiven. And I fear that I'm not able to hold on to my salvation. And that God might just turn his back on me. That's very typical. Very typical. I get letters like that just about weekly. Help me understand that my salvation is secure. Recently, I wrote a little book, and you probably have seen it in the bookstore if you've been over there, called Saved Without a Doubt. I wrote that book, one of many books, as you know, that I write, and uh, I just thought, this is a nice little subject. I'll just kind of write this book. It's not one of those big books, you know, with the big promo campaigns and all that the publishers do. It's just a little book. And that book has gone bonkers in terms of sales. 
thousands and thousands of people buying that little book because it is such a, of concern to them that they know whether their salvation is permanent. I've sat in meetings where I've heard people say, if you sin, you lose your salvation, and until you confess it and get it right, you don't get your salvation back. I was on a talk show one time, and I was asked a question about that, and I answered it biblically, and a man called in and said, you're wrong. If you don't confess a sin and you die, you'll go to hell, no matter what salvation you may once have held. People grieve over this. How are we to deal with that? Well, Romans chapter 8 really is the best place in Scripture because it gives us the most complete treatment of the eternality of salvation. It's something I want to share with you this time and in some of our future times. Now, go back to chapter 8, verse 1 for a moment. Let me just kind of put three things in your mind related to the three members of the Trinity. First of all, he says in verses 1 and 2, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has just described what it means to be in Christ Jesus. He started describing that in chapter 3, verse 21, and he is still describing it as he marches into chapter 8. To be in Christ means to place your faith in Jesus Christ. He's talking about salvation. And in verse 2 he says, When you are in Christ, you are free from the law or the principle of sin and death. So, in Christ, you have been delivered permanently from the devastating and killing effect of sin. That's what he's saying. Your provision in Christ then provides an eternal salvation. Because you have come to Christ, there will never be any condemnation. You have been delivered from the power of law, and the power of the law is to kill you. The wages of sin is death. You sinned, you die. You've been delivered from that. The law cannot sentence you anymore. You have been delivered from that because you're in Christ, and in Christ you died and rose again in His death and resurrection. In other words, your identification with Christ in His death suffices to pay the penalty for your sin. The penalty then is permanently paid, and you are set free from any demand that sin lays to kill you. You will die physically, but that's merely an escape into God's presence. Spiritual death, eternal death will never take place. So because you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. Because you died in Christ, you rose to walk in newness of life, you are now set free from any killing effect of sin. Down in verse 26 and 27, we go to the second member of the Trinity that we want to discuss, and that's the Holy Spirit. And in verse 26, it says, The Holy Spirit helps our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This isn't talking about some kind of babble. It isn't talking about some kind of ecstatic speech. It isn't talking about speaking in tongues. It isn't even talking about anything that can be uttered. What it's talking about is something too deep for words. It isn't spoken by humans. It is spoken by the Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us in divine language that can't even be put into words. Now, where does the Holy Spirit live? Inside, right? He dwells in us. It says that earlier in the chapter. So from within the believer, the Spirit of God is incessantly interceding with language that cannot even be expressed in human verbiage. And verse 27, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now think about this. 
The moment you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. From that time on, He intercedes before God. He pleads for you. He prays for you. And what do you think He's praying for? He's praying for your sanctification, for your purity. He's praying as Christ the high priest would pray, that God would continue to work powerfully in your life, that the Lord would sustain you, empower you. And he always prays according to the will of God, and God knows exactly what his prayer is. That's the second reason your salvation is forever. Not only because you are in Christ and you've already paid the penalty in His death and resurrection, so you're free from the law of sin and death, but because the resident Holy Spirit within you continually intercedes on your behalf and He always prays according to the will of God and the will of God is that you be kept and so God answers the prayer of the Spirit. His intercessory work is the second keeping factor. The third keeping factor is in verses 28 to 30, and these are familiar verses. We know that God, now we come to the third member of the Trinity, we call him the first member, God. God causes all things to work together for what? Good. Now, in the concept of all things, you can put everything, including, hang on to this one, sin. Sin fits into all things and all the other stuff of life. God is causing all things to work together for what? For what? Good. No matter what you do, God in His providence puts it together with all the circumstances in your life to effect your good. This is according, verse 28 says, to his purpose. And what is his purpose? He foreknew you, he predestined you to become conformed to the image of his Son. Before you were ever born, God predetermined to set his love upon you. He chose you, and he didn't choose you just to be saved. He chose you to become like Christ. Did you follow that? He chose you to be conformed to the image of his Son. He predestined you, verse 30, then He called you to salvation, then He justified you, and someday He will what? Glorify you. You see, the purpose of the Father was not just to save you, part one, that is your past salvation at the moment you put your trust in Christ, not just to save you, part two, that is your ongoing sanctification, but to save you, part three, that's your glorification, when you are conformed to the image of His Son, when you see Him and you're like Him. The Father's purpose then, from eternity past, was to set His love on you, to predestine you to be saved, to call you to salvation, to justify you, to sanctify you, and to glorify you. And what the Father begins, He what? He finishes. Why is your salvation secure? Because of the purpose of God, because of the prayer of the Holy Spirit, and because of the provision in Christ. In Christ, the law of sin and death is removed. The Holy Spirit continually intercedes for you according to the will of God, and God hears and answers His intercessory prayers that you be kept and held. Thirdly, God has a purpose, and His purpose is that you reach glory. So He takes everything that happens, whatever it is, all things, and He works them together for your good, which means your good ultimately in glory. Now, that's the, the, the heart of this eighth chapter of Romans. 
that your salvation is eternal, that if you ever genuinely put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are kept by the Son, you are kept by the Father, you are kept by the Spirit. They all have a part. Now, having said all of that, let's look at verse 31, and this is where we really want to focus. Having said all that, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? What is your reaction about this monumental statement, which has a lot more detail than I just covered? But what is your reaction to this? What conclusion are you going to draw from these tremendous truths about our security? What do we say in response? What is a proper response to this? That's the question. Now, he knows that somebody are going to say, well, somebody's going to say, well, yes, I know it says that, but, um, boy, uh, you can still lose your salvation and you can still perish. Uh, if you choose to remove yourself or if you fail through some trial, uh, you can undo what Christ is doing, undo what the Spirit is doing, and undo what God has purposed. Is that really a proper response? There are some people who would come along and say, well, either persons or circumstances can change this security. That's all there could be, right? Persons or circumstances. There are some persons in this universe who could come along and destroy your salvation. Let's look at verse 31 again. All right? If God is for us, what? Who is the person? If God says, I'm for you, I predestined you, I called you, I justified you, I sanctified you, I will glorify you. If the Holy Spirit says, I incessantly, unendingly intercede for you in divine language too deep for words. If the Son says, I fully and permanently and totally paid the penalty for your sin in my own death, therefore set you free. Who are the persons then that are going to come along and cancel out the work of the Trinity? If God is for us, who is against us? Well... I think there are some people who would try, some persons who would try. How about the Judaizers in Galatia? The Judaizers in Galatia who came into the church at Galatia and said, well, yeah, you say you're saved by grace through faith, but we're just telling you this, friends. Yeah, you, you can't get saved that way. You've got to have circumcision, the physical operation, and you've got to maintain all the ceremonies and the laws of Mosaic ritual. How about the Roman Catholic Church? How about the Roman Catholic Church that says, I'm sorry, you just lost your salvation, you're excommunicated? Let's get a little closer to home. How about the Protestant Church? How about my church, Grace Community Church, that says, I'm sorry, you've sinned and you continue to sin and you're not repenting from that sin and we put you out of the church. You're out of this church. Can the church take people out of grace? How about you? How about yourself? Can you just decide, ah, I don't want this anymore? I'll just take myself out of Christ. I cancel the relationship. I want to live a different way. I don't want to acknowledge Christ. Can some person do that? There are people in our world who would like to do that. 
You have an unsafe family, some of you. If your parents had their choice, you wouldn't be at this school. If your parents had their choice, in some cases, they wish you weren't a Christian, right? They would like to undo that. Some of you come from a Jewish background. You've been alienated from your family permanently. Secular education would like to do that to you. There are professors at the universities and colleges of our country who would love nothing more than to steal your faith, destroy your confidence in God, undermine your trust in Scripture, wipe out your belief system, erode the values that you hold to. I think the culture would like to do that. I think the massive approach of our culture to immorally indoctrinate people ought to be obvious to all of us, right? I mean, if you have convictions, strong biblical convictions about abortion, strong biblical convictions about homosexuality, about any kind of sexual sin, if you have strong convictions about things like that, our culture would like to tear those down, wouldn't it? They'd like to destroy your faith. If you have a strong conviction that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation and the Bible is the only book that teaches spiritual truth consummately, this society would like to tear down that kind of narrow-mindedness. And then there are the legalists, like the Judaizers, who would like to convince you that faith isn't enough. You've got to have certain ceremonies. Parade around, bend over a few times, light a candle, whatever it is. Walk a walk, crawl around, do something. Then there are the cults and isms and schisms and spasms and yogis and all the rest that come along. And, you know, they're California. we got them all, you know. Grow a beard, put on a bathrobe, go to the beach, say you're Moses. You'll have 50 followers in about 10 minutes, you know. And they would like to just shoot you right out of the saddle, as it were, in terms of your Christian faith. There are a lot of persons. You know one person who would really like to do you in? Satan. He went to God back in the book of Job and he said, God, you know the reason that your people follow you is because you bless them so much. It's pure selfishness. It's just because they're so prosperous. You just make life so good. And if you didn't make it so good for them, they'd turn on you. God said, you think so? Okay, go after Job. There he is. You can do anything to him, God said to Satan, but kill him. So he went after Job. Killed all his family, everybody but his wife. Later on, it looks like the one person Job might have wished the Lord had taken and left him a more sympathetic son or daughter. His wife said, curse God and die, which is bad advice, as if cursing God would make him go away, and as if dying would have anything to do with eliminating God from your destiny. And then his crops were gone, and all his fortune was gone, and through it all, what happened? Job said, I used to know you only by hearing, and now my eye sees you, and I repent in dust and ashes. Through it all, Job knew God more and loved him more and worshipped him more deeply. It had the very opposite effect. When he had nothing, his heart grew nearer to God. Satan wanted to steal his faith. He couldn't do it. Satan wanted to go after Paul. And it tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, Satan always picks the biggies, and he goes to God and says, I want Paul. 2 Corinthians 12 says, A messenger from Satan was sent after Paul. Paul prayed that the messenger of Satan would be eliminated. God said, No, because what he's affecting in your life is humility. I'll just turn up the level of grace so you'll be able to endure it. In fact, your power is connected to your weakness. I believe Satan's messenger wanted to destroy the faith of Paul by making life so miserable for him. He couldn't do it. And you remember the story of Peter in Luke 22. Satan uh, came to God and said, I want, I want 
prove to you I can destroy faith. I'll take Peter. Let me have Peter. Now, Peter had a fairly bad track record. You know, he was a kind of vacillating guy. And so Satan said, let me have Peter. And, you know, I can imagine the conversation with Peter when, when the Lord said to Peter in Luke 22, Satan has desired you to sift you. Uh, Peter probably said, well, you told him no, didn't you? And the Lord said, no, I told him yes. Because I want to prove to him again and to everybody else that even you can't break the faith of someone who's as weak as Peter. And he said to Peter, it's okay. When you go through this and you come out the other side, you'll be stronger. There are persons who want to devastate your faith. They want to do it in, through educational means, through media means, through the means of entertainment, music, movies, television, books, magazines. There are the cultists, the false teachers, the religious fakers and charlatans who want to undermine your faith. There are lots of persons. Those are human ones and even supernatural ones, Satan and demons. Martin Luther faced men who tried to get him to give up his devotion to Christ and recant. And one writer records something of the drama of that very unique encounter. This writer writes, Luther left Wittenberg believing that it was a summons to death. And he was urged to take refuge a day's journey away from Worms. But he refused to be daunted. He would go on even if there were as many devils in Worms as tiles on the housetops. On April 16, 1521, he arrived in the city and made his way through dense crowds to the house of the Knights of St. John, where he looked around with his piercing eyes and exclaimed, Deus erit pro me. He was required to appear before the Diet on each of the next two days, and Thursday, April 18th, marked the crisis when he made his famous speech in reply to all accusations. Luther spoke in Latin, but was asked to repeat it in German. Friends thought that the fur further effort would prove too much for him. But he went on to add one last word in his own language, Here I stand. He knew that his conscience was committed to the Word of God, and he could do nothing else. When the council adjourned, a German friends formed a ring around him while the Spaniards shouted, To the fire with him! To the fire! Within a week, he was kidnapped by friends and was carried off to safety in the castle at Wartburg. It was here that he wrote the hymn so well known in English, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. It reflects the spirit of triumph in his heart. Later, of course, he died never recanting his faith. Never. Verse 31 says, if God is for us, who is going to break his hold? Who can cause us to abandon him? Literally, the word if is a conditional particle A in the Greek, and it's the condition of a fulfillment or a fulfilled condition. Probably better to translate, since God is for us, who can get us? If we are hidden with Christ in God, if we are continually being interceded for by the Holy Spirit, if the purpose of God is to make everything work together for good, if the sacrifice of Christ has freed us from the law of sin and death, since all of this is true and God is for us, who can successfully overpower God? Tremendous truth. This is not new. Even the Old Testament... Jews understood this great truth. In Psalm 27, I could read a lot of Psalms, but listen to this. The psalmist writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I what? Fear. The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? 
When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me in spite of this, I shall be confident. The Lord is my light and my salvation. In Psalm 46, I can't resist just a note from that psalm. Psalm 46 and verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. We have no fear no matter what happens. Down in verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, and he repeats it again in verse 11. I have God on my side. Why would I fear any other person? Any other person. Genesis 15.1 says, Don't fear. I am a shield to you. Numbers 14.9 says, The Lord is near. Don't be afraid. 1 Samuel 17 says, The battle is the Lord's. He fights on your behalf and in your defense. An angel said to Gideon, The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. So Paul is making a grand and glorious, confident statement here. If God is for us, no one can successfully be against us. Somebody's going to say, wait a minute. What happens if God himself takes away our salvation? Nobody can do it to him, but can't he change his mind? Can't he say, I'm really sick of you. You keep coming back every day confessing I'm tired of this deal. Or, you know, you've just gone too far. You've sinned too significantly, too repeatedly. I'm just going to take back the gift I gave you. Keeping us saved may just be too much for him, so he lets us go. Paul answers that in verse 32. This is... Absolutely thrilling. Listen to this one. He who did not spare his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That is absolutely profound argument. And I'll show you, I'll try to show you what it means. What it means simply is this. If God already gave us His own Son to save us, that is the greatest gift. Will He not give us the lesser gifts to sustain us? Got that? The Father has already given the most. He's already given the best. He certainly isn't going to hold back what is less. You see, when he gave us the son, that was the best. That was the ultimate. That was the epitome. And Paul is saying he didn't spare his own son to save you. Don't you think he'll do whatever it takes to keep you? If he gave you the best, the most, to start it, won't he give you the least to sustain it? Tremendous truth. Just some words out of that verse, verse 32. He who did not spare, who didn't hold back, 
even his own son. His own son is sort of emphatic. Pronoun idiosis there means his own peculiar private possession. But delivered him up. Delivered him up to death. Delivered him up to the onslaught of Satan. If he did all of that, won't he do whatever else he needs to do to keep what he purchased in giving his son? I mean, just think about it. If God went to the extreme to give his son to save you, wouldn't he do something less less than that just to hold on to you rather than undo what he accomplished in paying that infinite price? Keep in mind, it wasn't Judas who delivered Jesus for money. It wasn't Pilate who delivered Jesus for fear. It wasn't the Jews who delivered Jesus for envy. It wasn't the Romans who delivered Jesus for indifference. It was God who delivered Jesus for love. And if he did that, won't he sustain what he did in Christ rather than undo it or let it be undone? John Murray, the theologian, writes, It is only as the ordeal of Gethsemane and Calvary is viewed in the perspective of damnation vicariously born, damnation executed with the sanctions of unrelenting justice, and damnation endured when the hosts of darkness were released to wreak the utmost of their vengeance, that we shall be able to apprehend the wonder and taste the sweetness of love that passes knowledge, love eternally to be explored but eternally inexhaustible. In other words, the supreme act of God's love was in the gift of His Son to purchase redemption. Anything else is less than that, and He will do the less who has done the greatest. If the Father didn't spare His Son but gave Him up to the shame and honor, I should say the shame and horror of sin, He won't fail to bring the goal of that to pass. So that verse 32 says... He'll give us all things, all things necessary for perseverance, all things necessary for security, all things necessary for glorification. Now, there's one other person that might jump in here. And that takes us back to Satan. You say, okay, we can't take ourselves out. God's not going to do it. What about Satan? Verse 33 directs its attention to that. And we'll just look at that briefly. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Now, we know that Satan has unique titles. He has several of them. But the title that I would just draw to your attention here is a title given to him in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And that is this title. He is the accuser of the brethren. I pointed that out with Job and Paul and Peter earlier. If there's anybody who is constantly before the throne of God harassing God about the fact that we are not worth saving, it is Satan. He's up there saying, God, the only reason they're faithful to you is because what you've done for them. They don't really love you. They're just cashing in the chips. Let me add Job and I'll prove I can destroy his faith. Let me add Paul, I'll I'll destroy his faith. Let me add Peter, I'll show you I can destroy his faith. He is endlessly and relentlessly and continuously before the throne of God harassing God about the fact that we are not worth saving, constantly listing all the things we've done, believe me, constantly accusing, 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 accusing. He wants us damned. He wants us in His kingdom. The question, Paul says, is who can successfully bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one justifying. 
In other words, there's no higher judge. Satan's not a higher judge. He doesn't have a higher standard. If God says, this person is just, that means right before me. This person is righteous. If God says that, there's no higher court. You say, well, wait a minute. But the fact is, we aren't righteous and holy. That's true from the practical standpoint. That's not true from the positional because we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, right? So when Satan accuses us of all our sins, the Father answers, but the sins are paid for in Christ and that person's been clothed with his righteousness. So God justified us. And God knows more than Satan because Satan's not omniscient. God is. He knows everything. So... Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. If God justifies us, there's no higher court. Who's going to condemn? Nobody. Certainly not Christ Jesus, who died and who was raised and who is now at the right hand of God interceding for us. Certainly not Him. Not after all He's gone through to save us. If an absolutely holy and pure God has declared us righteous and an absolutely holy and pure Christ has declared us righteous, doesn't matter what Satan says, he's no higher court. He's no higher court. The sum of it all, there isn't any person that's going to take you out of God's hands, not you or anybody else, not God himself. He's not going to undo what he spent the dearest price to do, and not Satan or his demons. The second category here has to do with circumstances. And we'll wait for that next time. There isn't anything in this life, there isn't any person or circumstance that can change your eternal salvation. Next time also we'll talk about what about those people who once claimed to be Christians and now no longer do. Father, we thank you for our time in your word this morning and what a wonderful and hopeful and happy confidence we have in the eternal character of our salvation. We thank you that salvation is forever, that nothing can ever pluck us out of your hand, for the Father is greater than all. We are hid with Christ in you. We just pray, Lord, that you'll give us the confidence that we are saved without a doubt forever. We thank you for such a gift. We're no more worthy now to be called your children than even before we were saved. It is still a gift of grace, and we are overwhelmed with gratitude for that gift. And may Jesus Christ be glorified through our gratitude as we live it out in obedience to him in whose name we pray. Amen.